Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. I am so boned. I forgot to get my girl tickets for the show tomorrow, and now it's sold out. It's her freaking birthday. Oh, dude. She's totally gonna break up with you. She's definitely gonna break up with me. Should've used TickPick. Wait, what'd you say? TickPick. Look. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. What? There are no hidden fees. What'd you guys think I said? Oh, TickPick. I thought you said TickPick. No hidden fees. Download today. What's up, Todd? Jack, how you doing, brother? Not too bad. Thanks so much for doing this, man. Hey, no problem. Excited to do it. Guns and Roses. Love it. Guns. We got Foo Fighters, uh, Greta Van Fleet over here. I'm a big classic rock guy. Oh, yeah. I ha- If you ever looked at my uh, Instagram page, I dressed up as Axl Rose because I had front row tickets to his concert. Yes. Loved it. <laughs> yes. He's, he's not quite as in shape as he used to be, but he still kicks ass, you know? Like, yeah, he can still... He can- as long as he hits the vocals, man, you know. I know. That, that's the most important part. I, I don't think Slash has aged today. Um, Duff McKagan as well on bass. I think those guys are the best. I mean. Yeah, Duff, Duff looks the best to all of them. Oh, yeah. yeah. Are, you, are you in <laughs> Connecticut now? Yeah, well, right now I'm in Florida because I got this fight this weekend. I'm, oh, I'm quarantined at the Hard Rock in Fort Lauderdale. I live in Connecticut. So that's good. You guys are actually like out and about. I'm sure like when the, when COVID first hit and everybody was in lockdown, like there were no fights. Oh, yeah. Whatsoever. No fights. And I'd say I get paid per show. So I was making zero money for eight months. Oh, when, when they first got back, were you guys working remotely or did, did you guys? Uh, no, but it was, uh, you know, just like it is now. There's no fans allowed. It's me, my two broadcast colleagues. And it's uh, my alarm to, to call you. And so no fans, it's very, you know, it's really weird, actually. Like, on the Friday, it'll be, like, 10 people and then the fighters. It's weird. I mean, I'm sure, like, with, with kickboxing as well as UFC, like, losing the fan aspect to it, it it's, mm-hmm. like, half the excitement. It, yeah, well, yeah. Well, and it's weird because some fighters, you can tell, handle it better than others. Some guys need that, that urgency from the crowd to go for knockouts. Otherwise, it feels like a sparring session, you know, like they're at the gym. Yeah, I, I mean – I guess for you personally, I guess I'll get right into it, was, uh, you know, like with glory kickboxing and calling kickboxing, like what about that kind of sets your soul on fire? What made you want to uh, pursue that? Because like it is like a median, I'd say, between MMA and, and boxing, right? Because there's yeah, what, three three-minute rounds? Yeah, three-minute, unless it's championship fight, it's three three-minute rounds. Championship fights are five-minute rounds. And when, I was working at ESPN at the time, yeah. and they signed a deal to start airing glory kickboxing. I remember the old K1 kickboxing back in the day. I was like, what is this? And I started watching some highlights. I was like, man, this is pretty awesome. So I sent an email to the CEO at the time, and his name's John Franklin, and he knew who I was, wrote me back, hey, we'd love to have you involved. And, man, I fell in love with it. I mean, boxing's my first love as far as fight sports, but kickboxing to me is the most exciting fight sport out there because, I mean, I worked for UFC for a year, which is awesome, obviously. Yeah. But, you know, half those fights, they're on the ground, and if you're not – deep into Brazilian jiu-jitsu you don't really know what's going on or you can't appreciate what's going on so uh but kickboxing it's pretty basic kicks knees punches let's go 
I feel like it's like calling like, you know, like a bottom of the ninth inning call, like a walk-off call, like 24-7. It's go, go, yeah. go. Like, like you just said, like UFC, it's like 90% of it is just them waiting. Like you're, you're just anticipating it. If you're not like a Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy or like a big MMA fight guy, yeah. it's just, I, I mean, me personally, it would get a little boring. Well, if you, if you look back at the UFC fights of the year, like the best fight from every year, almost every time it's two guys that are standing up just throwing kicks and punches. It's very rarely guys rolling on the ground and wrestling and jiu-jitsu. So even the UFC, while they won't admit it, realize the most exciting form of their sport is when two guys stand up or two girls and just go toe-to-toe. I mean, I'm sure. How, how many of those guys have you been in contact with that, like, are really into kickboxing? What do you mean? The uh, UFC guys? Yeah. Well, they love it, but a lot of them watch it. Almost all of them watch it. And most of the strikers that come from glory kickboxing to the UFC turn out to be great. Alistair Overeem is one of them. There's a guy named Alex Pereira who just made his MMA debut. Uh, the only problem is glory obviously can't pay what UFC could pay. Right. So even Clarissa Shields, who's one of, if not the best boxers in the world is starting to, you know, do MMA because that's where the money's at. And again, like what you're alluding to, like it's a lot more exciting given that it, it is a, a different sport, but at the same time, it possesses some of the things that a fighter would be used to be doing. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you got into a fight out in the street, you know, and you're just you and another dude, you're going to think kicks, elbows, knees, someone you're, unless you're trained, you're not going to think, let me take this guy to the ground, grab his arm and try and, you know, put it. Right. It's just, let's go. So, and the knockout ratio is close to about 40 to 50% in kickboxing, which is pretty much the highest. So like you said, more times than not, you're going to get a pretty exciting finish. I mean, I, I kind of feel like uh, with UFC fighters, especially because we saw it a lot in the McGregor Mayweather fight a few years ago. Connor got caught doing things that he probably shouldn't be doing, and the referee kind of had to had to stop the fight. And he kind of had to remind himself, like, okay, yeah. like a different world here. Oh yeah, I like the spinning back fist. I think I think boxing should add that in. Why not? A spin, throw it in there. It's still a hit with the glove. But what did you uh, think of the Tyson Jones fight? I, I to me, like it, it was built up tremendously and I was excited for it. But then at the end of the day, it just seemed like propaganda at the end of the day. Well, to me, I was, I was expecting worst case scenario. I thought they were going to go out there. They had no energy. They're going to lay on each other. Somebody, someone was going to cut and they stop it. So to me, it was better than I thought it would be. It still wasn't great. If you didn't know that was Mike Tyson and Roy Jones, and it was just fighter A and fighter B, you'd be like, what the hell is this? But yeah. since it was those two guys and, uh, I expected it to be so bad. It was, it was passable. I enjoyed it. In the whole event, there was other good fights on that card in the production level, maybe because I'm in, in television production, but the production level for that show with the lights, and the, it was just off the charts good. One of the best I've ever seen. And I, I worked for WWE and saw WrestleManias. It was almost a mini WrestleMania. That's what I was going to say. It was more of like a WWE-type setup, given that there were no fans. Like, you usually yeah. don't get that, like, backdrop like LED board entrance. Yeah. Boxing. And, and even the rappers, I'm, I'm not a big fan of having musical talents yeah. on there, but even each guy that came out and rapped, the the look, the the backdrop, it was just visually so entertaining. And so it just captured my attention. I, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. I mean, I think Tyson looked great, which I think a lot of people kind yeah. of expected. Roy Jones Jr. kind of looked out of shape towards – yeah. The end of that fight. And then the, yeah. obviously they call it a draw at the end. Do you think a lot of these big celebrity fights, we got Floyd versus Logan Paul coming up. Do you think these celebrity fights are good or bad for uh, boxing right now? It's an interesting question because 
those that say it's good say, well, look, if you put other legit boxing fights on the card, then people are coming yeah. to see these guys. Maybe they want to see them again. The only problem is those other fights have to be great. They have to be like, wow, I want to see this again. It just can't be a, a big name. Like Billy Joe Saunders in the boxing world, at least in England, a big name who was set to fight Canelo Alvarez next. Well, if you watched his fight on the undercard of the, I think it was Logan Paul KSI 2 fight, it was boring as hell. I was like, man, if anything, he pushed you know, fans away. So if you're going to put guys on there, to me, it's got to be great matchmaking where it's just, you know, Gotti Ward type guys, guys that are just going to, you know, go for the entertainment. That's what you need. I mean, that's what we kind of didn't get for this type. So it was Tyson Jones, and then you got Nate Robinson and Jake Paul, and then you got Jake Paul calling out everybody. But that was, hey, everyone criticized it, but that's, that's the thing everyone's talking about. Nate Robinson getting smashed and face down on the canvas. That's what people want to see. People can get on TV and say how terrible it was. It was a mismatch. It's disgusting. But the Ham and Egger guys, like me and you watching, are loving it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's great publicity, no doubt. Um, yeah. But, you know, for, like, the absolute diehard fight fan or fight analyst, like, such as yourself, yeah. like, I feel like a lot of people kind of take it as uh, an act of, like, disrespect. Like, there's so many guys who actually, like, fight and earn their way to the top, and then you see guys like the Paul brothers uh, getting opportunities. I'm speaking on behalf of one of my MMA buddies who, like, was completely yeah. just, like, aroused by it. But you know what? I used this analogy before. If I said, look, we're going to have the U.S. Open Tennis Championship this weekend, and after the final, Pete Sampras is going to come back and face off against Logan Paul in a tennis match. Would people be going berserk? They'd be like, oh, he's getting his ass. Who cares? But for some reason, boxing and fight sports, the naysayers are much more vocal, I think. But they end up watching it. I watched it. It's oh, yeah. got 1.8 million views. That's like quadruple the normal UFC pay-per-view. So it, people want, they want to see – Big, big picture, it's entertainment. No matter what it is, is it going to entertain me? Do I want to put my money down and watch it? Oh, yeah. I mean, they promoted it well, no doubt about it. I mean, you I mean, you working from both sides. Yeah, UFC, glory kickboxing now, what, seven, eight years with WWE? Given the, the circumstances, we kind of talked about how boxing and how they set up that whole uh, uh, Tyson Jones pay-per-view was very uh, charismatic. How do you compare the two, uh, calling you know the excitement for UFC and kickboxing, where obviously anything could happen at any given moment, where WWE, it's more like you kind of know what's going to happen and yeah. you have to kind of you know, tell the story the way it has to be told? Well, to me, the hardest thing is, is wrestling, WWE, because for the most part, it's the same exact storyline, just with two different people. Right. And they call it what they call, I think it's called a blow-off match. Let's say me and you are... are our rivals at WWE for the next couple months. Well, we'll have one match where one guy sneaks out of the ring and it's a disqualification. And the next match, someone will get injured. Or they'll build up to the pay-per-view. So by the time the pay-per-view comes, I have basically called that match in some shape or form 10 times. So I've got to think of a different way to say this. I've got to think of a different way to sell it, to make it exciting. So, and without saying the same thing and without giving away the ending, it's uh it's more of a performance, whereas boxing and UFC, besides just telling the stories and uh, the backstory, you've got to react. So you don't know what's coming next, and it's just uh, whatever comes out of my mouth. That's what I was going to say. That's probably the hardest thing. Like, you're going, you're kind of in cruise control, and then bam, like it comes out of nowhere, and you got to have to react to it. And, you know, hopefully in the back of your head, you're thinking, like, what's my call going to be? Yeah. Well, the, and 
I'm, I'm not one every once in a while. So it rarely happens before a fight, but sometimes during a fight, I'll see something. There was a, a, a female fight. And it's gonna, uh, Estrada versus, I can't remember her name. It was the quickest knockout in women's boxing history that wow. I called. It's Estrada or something. I, I don't know. Anyway, four seconds. So this girl was getting into the ring and I looked up at her and she looked scared to death. Whereas the other girl was biting down her mouthpiece about to kill her. And I wrote down on my piece of paper, I was like, lamb versus lion. Because that's what it looked like. The bell rings, the girl comes over, one, two, one, two, boom. Girl drops, knocked unconscious. Like, oh my God, it was lamb versus lion. So every once in a while, I'll do something like that. But for the most part, as you said, you're just reacting. And uh, those are usually the best calls to me. Um, You know, if you watch those... uh, street knockouts on uh, what is it world star or mm-hmm. whatever it is some of those are great because they got damn you know and, and people loved uh snoop dogs calling nate robinson where he goes oh lord <laughs> you know it's just you never know what's going to come out i thought that was a very interesting uh mix on commentary because you had mauro ronaldo everybody knows obviously uh had his time in, in pro wrestling with wwe as well very charismatic Snoop Dogg, who's never done it before in his life, um, was Adesanya from UFC. Yep. Was also they're very you know reserved, very quiet. What did you think of the the commentary from that pay per view? I enjoyed it. The, the only thing, I, the only issue I have is the more people you get on the broadcast, no matter how good they are, the, it's hard, the, the yeah. more they tend to talk over each other. So when something big happens, and I'm the the the, the main play-by-play guy, and I'm trying to describe what happens, but I got this guy screaming, oh, my God, and I got this guy going, blah, 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 blah. When it comes across TV, it's just a hodgepodge of noise. So if these guys can know when to lay out and let me get my part in and I know when to lay out and let them get their part in, then it can work. But that's very hard to do, especially when you've never worked with somebody before. Do you find it more difficult to not talk over someone like someone you're next to, your partner, your analyst, or mm-hmm. someone like a producer or director in your ear talking to you? Well, I, especially when I do the zone fights, I work with Sergio Mora a lot. He's kind of my guy. And we've got a relationship now. If I want him to shut up, I'll just reach over and squeeze his arm. You know, Or if I feel something big coming, I'll just – like your mom, when she hits the brakes in the car and puts her arm over your chest to protect you – I'll do that. But he knows, uh, you know, fighters, when they watch back their fights, they like good knockout calls. They don't want to hear screaming and, and they don't, you know, they want those and producers want it so they can put the packages together to sell the next fight. If you notice Canelo's next fight, uh, which is Saturday, if you watch the pieces that DAZN puts together, there's a lot of use of the announcer where he's like, Canelo's in trouble, Canelo's against the ropes, he goes down, whatever it is. So the cleaner the audio, the better it is for everybody. How often is, you know, a producer or director in your ear kind of like setting you up for certain things, kind of like being that, that you know, like the back of your head, like, all right, this is coming up. Let's make sure we hit this, this, and this, uh, especially for like big calls like that, like when you maybe you don't see something and they're able to kind of paint the picture for you. They rarely get in my ear as far as what's happening in the ring unless they want to say, hey, remember at the fighter meeting yesterday, he said in the eighth round he was going to do that. They might give you a little buzzword like that. But for the most part, the only time I hear from a producer is counts in and out of breaks. And then let's say the fight ends and we're talking like recapping. Like, hey, Todd, after this, we're going to toss to the uh, tail of the tape for the next fight. And then we're going to do that. So they're more of like a traffic cop. And I just take their direction. But as far as in the fight themselves, in the fight itself, I don't get much direction. 
That's that sounds awesome. I mean, I mean, I'm sure in WWE uh, commentary. WWE is a completely different yeah, story. I was gonna say, like, I, they say that Vince is constantly in people's ears. It's like you oh, don't yeah. want to commentate in WWE. Oh, he's never. He has a or used to. I haven't been there in probably uh, I don't know five or six years, eight years maybe even. Uh, the referee has an earpiece. I've got an earpiece. The guy who rings the bell has an earpiece. Camera. He'll he'd do everyone's job if he could. He's that kind of micromanager, and uh, he'd talk to you throughout the, the uh, fight. He'd tell you exactly what to say, and if you didn't say it verbatim, if he said, "This guy may be the greatest to come out of Harrelson County, Georgia," if I said, "This guy may be the greatest ever to come out of Harrelson County," you didn't fucking say Georgia. God damn it, that's not what I fucking. Said. While you're still calling the match, hey, well, you're in a clothesline. While this guy is just completely undressing. You're the worst commentator I've ever fucking hired. He, he, he started out as a commentator, too. He knows what, what that's oh. like, someone being in your ear constantly. And you're right. Like, if he could do it, if he could be uh, or, like, morph himself into yeah. different bodies, he would do everything. Oh, like, yeah. He's, I'm sure, I mean, you worked for him. He's a total workaholic, right? Oh. The good thing is, though, he, he likes to be in every, every piece of the business. So by the time he screamed at me 20 minutes ago and I see him in the back, he's completely moved on. To me, it's like life shattering. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm abused for life. You know, <laughs> wow. he's broken me down, and I'm like, uh, "Hey, Vince, how was the show?" Oh, okay, yeah. moves on. Like, what, what was one specific instance where you were on the mic and he was saying something so distracting that you were like, "Holy crap! Like, is this really happening right now?" Well, there was this wrestler named uh, John Morrison. Yeah. Who uh, at the time his gimmick was kind of like uh, L.A. guy floats through life. You know, parkour training, you know, that kind of surfer dude. And he, they loved to enter, what's the word I'm thinking for? Integrate the WWE magazine at the time. So any stories they write in there, they, he would love it if you said, hey, in the latest WWE magazine, John Morrison talks about blah, 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 blah. Well, in the WWE magazine, he talked about how he loved poetry. And in fact, his, his finishing move, which was Starship Pain, yeah. he wrote a poet a poem about starship pain. So in the middle of the match, he does something. And I say, you know, Hey, John Morrison in the latest edition of WWE magazine, uh, wrote a nice poem and described where his bubble and Vince man gets in my ear and goes, did you just fucking say that our number one heel writes fucking poetry? <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with you? And I was working with JR. Who's a legend. JR start talking. Todd, shut. You're not allowed to fucking talk anymore. Shut up. So I just sit there. The match happens. I don't talk for like eight minutes. JR told, says the whole thing. The, the match ends and he goes, all right, you can talk again. <laughs> can you imagine Joe Buck calling the freaking World Series in, in the fourth inning? The producer says, don't talk until the sixth. That's what he told me. Just <laughs> because I said that John Morrison likes poetry. Just because you did your homework, really. Yeah, I did my homework. <laughs> I did what he told me to do and I got punished. Um, I mean, that's an experience, if anything else, like getting to say that you got to work uh, in commentary in professional wrestling with, you know, the evil genius in your ear all the time. It probably wasn't a blast, yeah. but at the same time, like it was an experience. Yeah, I would just get mentally abused once a week and go home, you know, but I tell you this to, to toot my own horn a little bit. I wasn't exactly the most popular announcer or the most memorable announcer. But I was here for eight years, man. If you go back and look at some of these other guys that have called wrestling, it's, other than like Michael Cole, like Taz, he lasted, I don't know, four or five years. Uh, Josh Matthews, a couple years. Uh, 
Mick Foley could, Mick Foley walked off. He couldn't handle it. He couldn't handle, none of these guys can handle the yelling. So it's like basically JR, uh, Jerry, the King lawyer, Lawler, uh, Michael Cole. And after that, I may, I may have been on there the longest, man. I just stayed under the radar, popped up. Some of these guys want to get noticed and pitch ideas and do this, which can work for you as long as all your ideas are good. Then you become like a pain in everyone's backside. So I just stayed under the radar, did my job, got yelled at, went home, and I got paid well for about eight years. How many guys did you look for for advice when tr doing that? Because, again, he's in your ear all the time. I mean, I'm sure JR or, or Jerry the King Lawler, Michael Cole, obviously still there, uh, still taking it. Uh, what, what kind of advice did they give you kind of, uh, kind of, you know, like warming you up, saying like, all right, this is how it goes, be prepared yeah. for this. Uh, and w did anybody tell you, like, maybe if you stand up to him, he'll respect you more? Like, yes, I, I was told oh, that many times. Yeah. But I never tried. I never tried. <laughs> now, I would go, if there was a specific question I had, I would meet with him before the show and ask him specifically, you know, like, hey, listen, when this guy comes out of the rafters and lands in the ring, am I supposed to act surprised? Am I supposed to know who this is? Am I, I would ask him those kind of questions. But other than that, man, I just learned there were buzzwords that he absolutely hated. There were, you never called them belts. A belt was a physical thing, a title. A title was this, a title. So he, he would have a title around his waist, not a belt. And those other little things like that. So if you avoided the landmines that you knew he would get upset about, you know, you could, you could do okay. So sometimes less is more. Like JR has some all-time great calls, and, but he got fired like four or five times. Right. So I knew, hey, I'll, I would only get fired once, and then I'm done. So uh, I did the best that I could. Um, like I said, I was just trying to keep my job, keep him happy. The whole world could like you. And I'm talking about 3 billion people could say you're the greatest wrestling announcer ever. But if Vince McMahon thought you sucked, you're done. Oh, yeah. I mean, you see that in, in today's product. I don't know how, how familiar you are with it. Like, there's a lot of popular guys among the fans. But, like, if Vince doesn't like you, you're not going to get pushed. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Well, just like wrestlers, same way, you know. People are complaining about why is Roman Reigns, or they were, why is yeah. Roman Reigns getting shoved down our throats? Why is John Cena getting shoved down our throats? Well, because Vince thinks it's a good business move. Yeah. And, hey, you can't argue with his success. So, oh, yeah. I mean, it's the highway. Oh, yeah. Like, 90% of his ideas are awesome. It's the 10% that you're like, oh, my God. Like, we're, yeah, we're, we're around for some of those. Like, what, what is he thinking? Like, we have to go through with this? Someone, someone said this about Newt Gingrich, the politician. I think the same thing could be said about uh, Vince McMahon. Like 95 out of 100 of his ideas would be fantastic. And the other five could destroy the earth as we right. know it. <laughs> you know, it's true. But, uh, yeah. Is it true that he doesn't like sneezing? That's, that's like the biggest myth from Vince McMahon. It's He's like, in like germs. And you could not yawn around him either. Do not yawn. Wow. No sneezing, no yawning, no – just no – he was a – he always had hand sanitizer, and now it'd be total normal. You walk by, you're like, "Hey, he's, he's a responsible adult." He was doing that for decades, so I don't hold that against him. Hmm. I guess it's a sign of weakness to yawn and sneeze. I don't know. Like you can't control that. Maybe that's well. It. You, you know, you can kind of control. I've learned how to yawn with my mouth shut. You know, just like right. mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you can do it, but right. um, you know, it's just. To him, I would especially think the yawning is basically like, oh, really? I'm boring you? Did you come sitting here with me? Then go wow. some, sit somewhere else. So to kind of switch gears from that, I kind of wanted to pick your brain about, you know, your origins of your broadcast career as an aspiring broadcaster. Because, again, like, you weren't one of those guys that, like, went to the, the Syracuses or the Northwesterns. You kind of had to, like, 
because again, me at GCU, like I'm in it for the reps. Like I'm not in it for the title of the school. I could have went to Cronkite, you know, journalism school at ASU and right. with 600 other guys, but I wouldn't be getting the reps. Exactly. Uh, when did you decide you wanted to become a broadcaster at a young age? And what was like your first uh, inspiration in sports? Well, when I was, uh, I want to say like eight, nine years old, I used to love listening to radio DJs. And I thought that was so cool. And I want to be that guy. And I bought this book called On the Air, which yeah. gave you advice on how to do it. And I used to, they had little voice exercises. I'd wake up in the morning and do all these voice exercises to deepen my voice and strengthen it. And that's all I wanted to do. And uh, sports kind of came later. I mean, I like sports, uh, but I just wanted to be in broadcasting. And then uh, I got my first radio job at uh, WCKS, Carrollton's KISS 102.7, where we always give you a perfect mix of music from the 80s, 90s, and today, no hard rock, no rap. But uh, I did that, and then on Friday nights, they had the high school football game of the week, and uh, I would play the commercials, you know, during the breaks. And I listened to the guys calling the, the, the games, and high school football is huge in Georgia. And I was like, man, these guys, I'm better than these guys. I could do it better. Mm -hmm. So I talked to the boss, said, well, maybe next season. Sure enough, they let me do it in the next season. Started calling football. I got pretty good at it. And then when I graduated school, uh, I loved soccer. I was a soccer player, played in college, and I wanted to like call the World Cup. I want to be a world uh, a, a soccer announcer. Sent some emails to some guys, and they said the best thing you could do is just get your foot in the door anywhere. So okay, so I started as small as you could go. I got my first television sports job in Atumwa, Iowa, which is my my market two hundred out of two twelve. Like I mean, it's like you know cows are listening. Uh, and then I moved to the next biggest market, came to Tucson down near you. You're in Phoenix. I was in Tucson for five years. And then I got my big break at uh, WWE when I was 27, and it, it all took off from there. Well, I mean, I'm sure WWE, I'm sure you grew up a wrestling fan if you were interested in it. But it probably wasn't your first choice. Like You were probably thinking in the back of your head, like, wow, this was going to be my first big break. It was weird because I used to do all these fun Friday night football sketches when I was in Tucson with the guy I worked with. And we had a real fun and joking, and that was my thing. I'm like, I just don't want to be yeah. boring. Oh, yeah. I just want to be, you know, whatever. People would think I suck, but at least I'm not boring. The other guys in Tucson were like in their 50s, and they were like, today the Arizona Wildcats faced the Arizona State. No, I was like. But uh, someone saw me and referred me to some agent guy who called me and said, listen, WWE has an opening. Uh, would you want to work there? Would you be interested? I'm like, send my tape in because yeah. at that time you had to put your stuff on vhs tapes i'm best to send out 200 of those i'm not kidding like every week i'd send it to you know los angeles or minneapolis wherever to get a bigger job and then like six months later someone calling from wwe i didn't even remember sending my stuff in and they said hey it was friday they said can you be in new york city on monday to do an audition three days later i'm like uh sure they flew me up there and they were impressed because I studied my ass off because I had, hadn't watched it in like three years. Right. So I printed out a binder of every single wrestler on the uh, roster, just their one page bio that was on the website. So, cause I knew it was going to call matches. So they said, all right, we're going to, you're going to call hardcore Holly versus uh, Shane uh, uh, hurricane. Right. Okay. So I pulled out hardcore Holly's thing, pulled out hurricane thing, set it down. And uh, the woman was just flabbergasted. She couldn't believe it. And it's, it's so much easier because I knew I, could, I didn't know all the moves. And I, if you miss call a move, you sound like an idiot. So I just kind of stayed above the fray and just like, you know, hey, this guy has been in WWE for eight years. And uh, he started out this and he's got won this title. And, and uh, she was like, no one's ever prepared like that. And they had, I think, four other guys doing the audition, audition the same day. And they were all kind of taking it as a joke almost. 
because WWE, for some reason, does not like people who love wrestling working for them because they think they'll be marking out and bothering the wrestlers and have their own insights of what, you know. I come to them and they can mold me, right? Because they can tell me exactly what they want and I don't have any preconceived notions. So uh, they love my preparation and they hire me. That's kind of shocking that, you know, no one else really prepared in, in the same sense. Because, yes, yeah. it is different. But, and how yeah. different is the, 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 the game prep, in a sense, uh, from, you know, calling, whether it is kickboxing or any other sport, baseball, football, basketball, whatever, as opposed to something that's going to be scripted, like you said, like he's in your ear all the time and you basically know what you're going to be talking about yeah. is just painting the picture for the audience. Well, unlike boxing, like if someone hits you with a left hook, I will say, oh, I caught him with a left hook. I can't say that in WWE. Vince hates that. He likes descriptions. For instance, instead of a clothesline, I would say something like, oh, he just got hit by a two-by-four right across his chest. Can you imagine the pain that he's going through? So everything was always just like just more descriptive and more not-so-nouns. You know, give me – what it feels like or what, what he's thinking about or what he's going through as opposed to what happened. I mean, I'm sure that makes you a better broadcaster too. Yeah. I mean, given not only like we talked about with him kind of putting the pressure on knowing that he's listening 24 seven to everybody, but at the same time, like having to kind of adapt in that sense where like you, it's kind of scripted, but at the same time you have to really prepare and be descriptive, like you said, or else you're, you're going to get, you know, trashed on by the guy. Yeah, and plus, let's say the Kane, the big red machine Kane. I'm calling his match literally every week, 52 weeks a year. So if I call him evil, I can't say evil 52 times. So the next time he's diabolical, the next time he's sinister, the next time he's ultra aggressive, you just got to come up with, with different ways to say the same thing. So in WWE and really in sports in general, a thesaurus is your best friend. Yeah. Wow. That's got to be challenging. I mean, what, yeah. what what year was it when you won the uh, Slammy Award? You won a Slammy in 2008? <laughs> well, that's all rigged. It's funny. Oh, I think what? I won it in like 2009. And uh, in 2008, I was voted as worst announcer by the Wrestling Observer. Wow. So, yeah, that's the, the, the Slammies aren't exactly. But, hey, I've got one in my, in my basement. Stud. That's the only award I've won, basically. So Yeah, there you go. I mean, that, that's a good treasure trove right there. I mean, oh, how, yeah. how, how, cause yeah, again, like it, it's all kind of rigged, but at the same time, like I know in today's world, I don't know if they've had one. I think they're, they're actually bringing it back this year. Um, do they actually let the fans vote on that stuff or does Vince already have it predetermined? Who's going to be winning those awards? That I don't know. It, it, like you said, it, it kind of comes and goes one year. They'll have it back to back three years and goes away for a couple, couple years. I think some of the awards are decided by WWE and a couple of the other ones are fan voted. I'm not sure. I highly doubt mine was fan voted. I'm sure it was Vince just trying to piss off Jerry the King Lawler or something. Give it to Grisham. <laughs> just trying to motivate the other guys. Oh, uh, man, that's funny. And again, like to go back to the broadcasting thing, it's, it's a completely different entity because not only are you kind of having to act in a sense – but you have it in the back of your head, like, okay, maybe I'm going to be used for something. Like, you've taken bumps, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, sweet chin music from Shawn Michaels. F.U. from John Cena, among some of them. What's yeah. it like taking a bump in the wrestling ring? Because I'm sure that's not, you know, like a pillowcase in, well, in the ring. No, well, the good thing is, they if you weren't a worker, as they called them, you would get hazard pay. So anytime anyone got physical with me, I would get $500 cash. 
Nice. So Mickey James slapped the bejesus out of me. And as soon as it was over, we went to break and I'm still stammering. All right, here you go, Todd. One, two, three, four, five. I'm like, beat the hell out of me. But, wow. you know, uh, the ring is forgiving if you land in the right spot on your body. As long as it's not your bone or your shoulder. If you land flat on your back, you'll be like, oh, it's more of like a jolt. So, like, when I got the FU from John Cena, it was a jolt. It didn't feel good, but you know you're not injured. Um, what else? Sweet chin music. Uh, you cannot move. He will tell you that. Because if you move, because you're going to flinch. If I said to you, I'm going to throw a punch right now, your first thing would be like this. You're like, he's like, listen, trust me. I'm not going to hurt you. You just got to gotta get over your, the back of your brain telling you to move out of the way of a punch and just stand there. So he kicked me, and it felt almost like a, a little ping-pong paddle slap, like, pow. It was a bottom of shoe, and he almost like, instead of a real kick, would kick through your face. Yeah. But he would almost come down like this. You know what I mean? So it hurts you a little bit, but it's your, – your adrenaline's going, bro. If you know someone's about to kick you in the face, and it's Shawn Michaels in front of 8 million people around the world, you're like, just don't move. Don't move. Right. And then the cameraman, if you notice – they have a great way of shaking the camera and, you know, cutting to a different shot. So you can't really tell how bad it hurts. So mine looked like he killed me, but I survived. Wow. And it's like the second you flinch, I mean, there it goes again. Like you're, you're back in the hot seat with Vince backstage. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, have you seen, or d during your time there, did you see him like really choose someone out like really bad where you're like, Oh, they might not come back from this. Well, I, hey, it was, it was for the world to see the time that uh, Batista and John Cena went over the top rope of the Royal Rumble and they weren't supposed to, and they couldn't determine a winner. I don't know if, no, remember if, don't know if you remember that. Yeah. But there was a few minutes where people were like, what do, what do we do? Vince comes out of Gorilla. The Gorilla position's up. Stumbling, throwing his jack off. What the hell is going on? Gets in the ring. Boom! His right quad right. rips off. Yeah. Oh, he falls down. He tries to get up. Boom! His left quad rips off his bone, and he just sits there in the ring face imagine the pain imagine the pain and he's just sitting there just just scanning <laughs> yeah, that's how mad he was and uh i remember they cleared the whole back area so no one could see him in the weekend state and uh yeah that's the maddest i've ever seen him wow and then there was there was another thing that i kind of want to talk to you about and i promise this will be the last vince question but there was that time and I guess, you know, very tragic time in 07, you were there when the whole Benoit thing went down. Yeah. Because Vin, and Vince specifically, because they, what, he just like killed himself off, right? He blew himself up in the limo. And then he had to come back on TV to announce that and totally just debunk the storyline, right? The whole day was surreal because we were all told to wear black suits and black ties because it was going to be the funeral for Vince McMahon that night on Raw. Wow. So we're all dressed like a funeral, and he called. They call us out in the arena, and we're like, "What's going on?" And he told us, and bro, it was just. I remember Vicky Guerrero's just piercing scream. All the people were screaming, crying. Poor, you know, it was just stunning. And they sent us all home, and it was just, you know, we come filing out of there literally like we had just been to a funeral. And at the time, we didn't know what Benoit had done. Right. We just knew that he and his wife and child were dead, and. Uh, so there wasn't a lot of anger. It was just a lot of a sadness, which later would turn to anger for many people. Right. Because what? It was 24 hours after that, right? After Raw. Like, it was a big tribute show for, for Benoit. Yeah. And then 24 hours later, you find out the details of it. And it's, like, totally, like, 180. Like, all right, we're never going to talk about him again. 
It went from one of the greatest performers of all time. He will be missed. Oh, my God. People are crying, doing testimonials. We love you, man. And then the next day it was, you will never hear the name Chris Benoit on WWE programming ever again. Because he was one of the best. Like, he's up there with the Rocks and the Stone Colds and the Cenas. But, like, wrestling fans today won't ever know that. Which is, I mean, yeah. it, for good reason. Uh, you, you can't promote that stuff. But at the same time, his legacy was completely destroyed did you see the vice documentary uh, i did Benoit? yeah i did i i, I wouldn't say i enjoyed it but i right. it brought back memories i watched it uh i want to say kerwin white what's why can't i remember his name right now he's a friend of mine uh eddie guerrero's uh nephew chavo Al guerrero uh chavo right chavo yeah. yeah uh chavo was great in that and uh you know tough on him him he was very close to Benoit and to Eddie Guerrero. Right. They both died in a tragic fashion. So um, God bless him, man, but he's still doing really well. I know he worked with Glow for a while, and uh, he's doing a lot of stunt work. And, uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's doing great. What was the, uh, the final days like in WWE for you? Was it just time to move on to something different? Because obviously, uh, I, I mean, speaking from my own experience, like I would love to bounce around from place to place, experience after experience after experience. Was it just time for you to move on? Were you sick of it? Was there just a better opportunity with ESPN and other things alike? It, I kind of saw the writing on the wall. I mean, I started out doing Raw, then SmackDown for a while, and then uh, I did ECW, and then they started out NXT, which at the time, when it first started, it was red hot. People loved it. And then they kind of moved to the back burner and they pulled me off SmackDown and put me on NXT. And I was like, I don't think this is good. And my deal was up in about six months. And my friend Jonathan Coachman was working at ESPN. And uh, wrestling at that time, not so much now, was seen almost as porn. I have used that reference before. Like people were like, it's good, but I'm not, you know, this could, you could be the greatest right. porn actor ever, but they're not hiring you to be in Dances with Wolves. You know what I mean? Right. So, I was like, I'm, I'm pretty good at what I do, but I'm just hoping ESPN would at least give me a look. So after a couple of phone calls, a couple of emails, they were looking for some new anchors. I at least got a tryout. That's all I could ask for. And it went well enough where they offered me the gig and it paid about what I was getting. And I was thinking, you know, there's much more upward mobility for me there and expand my career. Because at the time, WWE was the end-all, be-all in wrestling. So if you got cut from WWE – you know, you could go to like impact or something and make a third of the money. But I just saw it as a writing on the wall, great opportunity. And I, I know I made the right decision. What was that conversation like when you left? Was it just kind of like, all right, good luck or. Well, I went to uh, Kevin Dunn, who's the executive producer. And I just said, Hey man, uh, just want to let you know, I've been offered this position at ESPN. Here's the details. And he was extremely cool about it. Yeah. yeah, hey, Because in the big scheme of things, it's good for WWE, and not so much anymore because it's more common. But when Jonathan Coachman left to go to ESPN, that was a big deal, man. Wrestling people didn't get those opportunities. Maybe a wrestler would pop up on MTV or something, but to be in a serious journal. So me and him were, I don't want to say trailblazers, but it was a good look for WWE to say, hey, two of our uh, last broadcasters are now working at the Worldwide Leader of Sports. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure, obviously, they looked at it that way. I mean, and, and that's a perfect uh, uh, a metaphor uh, for WWE at the time. It, it was like porn. Like, me specifically, I didn't get into it until I was a little bit older. I know, like, my brother, when he was, like, four years old and up, was watching it. I started when I was, like, 
14, 15 years old. I think it was 2011, the whole year, you know, CM Punk walks out, holds the WWE Championship hostage. That's when I got into it, and I would sneak it in my living room. I'd, I'd hear my dad coming around the corner, and I'd switch back to, like, the Yes Network and the Yankee game or something. Yeah, yeah. Like, what are you watching? I'm like, oh, you know, the Yanks are on fifth inning, whatever. And uh, he's and looking back at it now, he's like, dude, you were totally, like, watching WWE back then. Like, I'm a big yeah. fan now, and I'm open about it now, obviously. But back then, he was just like, I knew you were sneaking it. I, I thought that was pretty weird, but pretty funny. You like it better now than uh, 10 years ago? Uh, uh, I mean, obviously, I think the storylines were better 10 years ago. Because, again, in your time, like, that was kind of prime time. Like, like we were saying before, 90 to 95% of Vince's ideas were awesome. I don't know how true that holds anymore. Because a lot of guys yeah. are coming out saying that they don't like what they're in, and that's why they leave to go to other companies. Right. Well, everybody, I will say this, everybody thinks they're being underutilized. Oh, yeah. Roman Reigns thinks he's being underutilized. Trust me. So every single guy there has big attitude and thinks they should be in the main event spot. So that doesn't surprise me. But I think a lot of the decisions now are mostly Triple H's decisions, not so much Vince McMahon anymore, especially storyline type stuff. Maybe I'm wrong. But Triple H, I think, does a pretty good job, and he's got a, a pretty clear head. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure, like, if you were there now with NXT, totally different scenario as opposed to 2010, 2011, yeah. where just starting out, nobody really knew what the, the direction yeah. for it was. Yeah. And, you know, now, from what I understand, Vince uh, only goes to Raw, or maybe he's just not in your ear anymore, really. It's, it's Triple H or someone else. So they, they give the announcers a little bit more freedom, which would be much better, I think. That's like going from 100 back to zero. I feel like yeah. it's like, oh, okay. Like yeah. I can actually enjoy myself tonight. But I will say this, man. I can handle anything on air. Ask, uh, ask anyone I work with. That's one of the strengths I have. Because I, at WWE, you have to be able to handle anything. You have to oh, yeah. handle a psychotic man dropping F-bombs in your ear while you're still calling a match. This isn't during, this isn't during commercial. Oh, yeah. I remember the first, I hosted this pay-per-view pre-show. Uh, I want to say I was in Columbus or Cincinnati, and it was me and Maria Canellis, the former Playboy Playmate. So we're hosting this uh, thing. They, they put us up in the uh, concourse of the arena. So we had a little, like, five-foot stage and had fans surrounding us, like college game day, right? These are wrestling fans, of course. And they're like, okay, we're going live in three, two, one. And as soon as I start to talk, the crowd starts chanting, fuck you, Grisham. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to beautiful Columbus, Ohio. Fuck you, Grisham. Fuck you, Grisham. And I didn't miss a beat because I've learned how to block all this stuff out, man. And uh, I can do that in boxing. There can be a riot going on, and I can just I can stay on point. I mean, that being your first experience, having, again, that evil genius dropping F-bombs in your ear, WWE yeah. crowds are obviously insane. For the most part, great, but at the same time, sometimes they could be really volatile. Uh, yeah. you know, chanting F-U Grisham, like, what's, what's the purpose in that? Like, that's just a fun chant, I guess, like a gimmick chant. They uh, just, like, love that. Trust me, I've been to some of these, like, autograph signings at WrestleMania that I have, like, whatever, and sometimes I would be the guy – to entertain the crowd while they're in line because they're in these long lines. And I do WWE trivia, right? You know, and every once in a while there'll be somebody goes, Grisham, you fucking suck. You blah, blah, blah. So I'd walk over to him, and as soon as you go over to him and confront him, oh, I'm just kidding, man. I'm just having fun. Can I get your autograph and a picture? They just want to rile your feathers. And, you know, they got that machismo feeling uh, going around. But for the most part, they just, they're just trying to get a, a rise out of you. Right. And that being your first experience, I mean, it, it makes sense that everything else is kind of – 
Like, does it feel mellowed down, anything else? Like, it's just as hectic sometimes, like you mentioned in boxing or UFC or wherever you're at, but at the same time, is it kind of mellowed down compared to what you experienced in world wrestling entertainment? Yeah, nothing can nothing can compare, you know. Yeah. I mean, calling boxing at Madison Square Garden and those type – Northeastern crowds are usually the most vocal, but it's not directed at me anymore for the most part. They'll be pissed at Triple G for not knocking a guy out. Or they'll be mad at the referee for stopping a fight. But yeah. they're, they don't even hear what I'm saying, you know. But at uh, WWE, they know they're so the fans are so passionate. They they know everything about you. Way to get a divorce, you fucking loser! I saw that. Allison Grisham hates you. You. Thanks, man. Uh, How's your family doing? Good to hear that. Everybody's listening to like the David Meltzers of the world and 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 everything on pro wrestling rumors or whatever. But you learn how to block it out. Just it's just like Twitter. You know, some people can't handle the criticism, but. Twitter is a place for hate. It's not a place for love. No. I mean, that, that's kind of been determined over yeah. the past few years. What, have, you ever watched a, uh, have you ever watched a broadcast and been like, you know what, play-by-play guy, he's, he's pretty good, and yeah. gone on Twitter and be like, hey, you know what, no. But if he screws up, he just called Roman Reigns Rikishi, fire him, you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so to me, you know, you did a good job if you don't get too much hate. The less hate you get, you're going to get hate. But the less hate you get, you know, I'd go to my bo- boss and be like, look, I only have four death threats after this show. Hey, way to go, Todd. You know? What do you think about some of those Twitter rants from people? Do you think it's more of like an insecurity thing or do you think that they could actually do what you do? Because I feel like, I mean, me especially growing up, I'm like, yeah, I mean, he could have done better with that call. Like, I probably could have done a better job, even though I had zero experience as a nine-year-old yeah. kid. Yeah. Well, if anyone specifically goes after my talent level. Like he's just not good at his job. He just, I'm like, okay, especially with UFC. I would say, listen, bro, re- record yourself next time. It's a six hour broadcast. You get no breaks, six hours. Don't ever hit stop on the tape, record and send it to me. Yeah. And uh, I'll, I'll cut it up for you. And we'll, we'll post it on Twitter and let people vote on who did a better job, me or you. No one's ever done it because it's impossible, man. You might, you might have a little speed, a little, little run there where it's pretty good but it's so much more than just calling the knockouts or calling the main event you got to get there when there was crowds i'm calling undercard fights where there's 10 people at madison square garden and i'm calling to fight you know so it's not all the glitz and glamour you got to make that fight as sellable and as entertaining pretty much as the main event so anybody can step in there and bottom of the ninth world series and do pretty good job oh my god the tension is so but how about you know the first the, the fourth inning of the game between the Reds and the Pirates where they're both in last place. That's the game that you, you, you find out if you got talent. Oh, yeah. Like 11 nothing score, you just have to go based on storytelling. Like, are yeah. you prepared? Are you not prepared? Those are the games I like, though, because that's when, like, you're easily exposed, you know, as a yeah. broadcaster. Oh, yeah. But you, you ask any announcer, the, the, the phrase is, let's say it's, it's, you know, Canelo versus Triple G. Those fights almost call themselves, or like a, a crazy, fantastic football finish. It's hard to screw those up. A guy throws a hail mary and catches it. As long as you're excited, those are hard to screw up. But give me the the prior three hours and fifty seven minutes that you talked. That's what I want to hear. Oh yeah. Did you enjoy? Um, I mean, obviously you probably enjoyed calling UFC uh, uh, fights, but like you said, like some of those undercard fights, trying to make them more interesting. Do you have a specific favorite fight that you called during your time in, in UFC? Well, fortunately, I got to call the 2017 fight of the year between Michael Johnson and Justin Gaethje, and that's maybe the best fight I've ever seen. 
I mean, wow. it was it was just electric. And credit to Brian Stan, who I called it with, because a lot of times Joe Rogan and Daniel Cormier they get into the hooting and the hollering and become fans, which is you know whatever. But Brian Stan's so professional. He lay he he laid out when it was my time to talk. You know, when there's action, I'll tell anybody I, I work with. I'm like, you can talk whenever you want. You don't have to wait for me to to say ask you a question. Just talk. Do your thing. Be yourself. Except when there's action in the ring, then I'll cut you off. No matter. You can be telling me about how your mom died in a car wreck yesterday. But if Canelo lands a right hand and Triple G stumbles backwards, we don't care anymore. Right. That supersedes everything. And Brian Stan, that pretty much that whole fight was all action. And wow. he laid back, let me speak. I spoke probably seventy percent of the time, and he would come in with a perfect little one line or a perfect little nugget because they stood on their feet the whole time. So uh, it was just uh, an incredible fight. I felt like I did a pretty good job. I mean, that's all. I mean, I might have to go back and watch that fight. I can't remember it off the top of my head. I just know Justin Gaethje, obviously, right now, had the year of his career with a big upset over Tony Ferguson, which I don't think yeah. anyone really expected. Um, I made some money off that, I'll admit. I chose the underdog in that fight. That was probably one of the best days of 2020 for me. Uh, there you go. He really didn't have much going on. That, that was one of the pluses. Uh, and then, of course, the big uh, fight against Khabib came up a little bit short. Uh, so, and again, kind of back to, cause UFC, you got McGregor versus Poirier coming up. Uh, does that fight intrigue you at all? Like, what do you think of Conor McGregor's kind of whole mentality? You know, he's probably came out of retirement four or five times at this point. Yeah. But is that a fight that intrigues you at all? Not really. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm not as into UFC as I was a couple of years ago. Now there's so much boxing happening. Like we were talking about before the show started, eight months, there was nothing. I wasn't getting paid, doing nothing. Now we have this flurry of fights. we got three this weekend. I'm obviously calling Triple G on Friday. Canelo's on Saturday. Anthony Joshua's at last weekend. So, And I got a kickboxing event I'm calling on Saturday, live from uh, Rotterdam, going up to New York City. So I'm so into that. But when I heard Dustin Poirier, I was like, he's already beat him once. Right. And he's – Conor McGregor transcends the sport to me. So it's to me, it's got to be almost like Floyd Mayweather. Like, if it's not a huge money-making, exciting fight, it doesn't peak my. I'll watch it. Don't get me wrong. But to the average Joe, Conor McGregor, who's he fighting? A Dustin Poirier. Oh, who's that? But if I say he's fighting Nurmagomedov, or he's fighting, obviously he wouldn't fight John Jones. But just you need to me, McGregor needs another big, big name. Oh, yeah. I mean, there were so many guys that he calls out, though. You know, like, you could have gotten yeah. the Diaz trilogy, which I think everybody would have gotten excited for. Uh, he called out – or I think he even accepted a fight offer from Anderson Silva at one point last year, and yeah. that, that's not going to happen now. That probably would have been arguably one of the biggest fights ever because Connor's always said that he's the best – or, like I guess, the number one uh, wrestler in – and MMA in his mind, you know, yeah. that would have been a big fight. Uh, but I agree with you. Dustin Poirier does not have like that same sizzle as a, a, a big name guy would for, you know, like the non-casual mainstream crowd that watches fight. Yeah. Especially since he hasn't fought in so long. It'd be one thing if he was trying to fight three or four times a year and you're like, okay, Dustin Poirier, good fighter. Maybe can upset him. Okay. That's what, but for his big comeback fight, I would have loved to, you know, Nate Diaz, oh, but, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's a path. He just wants to get back in the, in the, what do they call it? Not the cage, the, the octagon. Yeah. That's another thing. You do not call it the cage. WWE had about 50 things you couldn't say. UFC had about four. You do not call it the cage. Wow. Um, yeah, but I'll watch it and good luck to both of them. 
Yeah, I mean, and there's probably so many things that prevent certain fights like that. Like, like you said, working for Vince McMahon, total workaholic. I'm sure Dana White is kind of in that same boat. Maybe not to the intensity uh, of Vince McMahon, but at the same time, like he is very, very into his job, and it shows the amount of success that UFC has has uh, kind of uh, catapulted over the past decade or so because he just struck that huge deal four or five years ago 2016 i think it was um what are the similarities because i'm sure your time with ufc was a lot shorter than it was with wwe but what were the similarities between those two uh juggernaut entrepreneurs well vince mcmahon has a lot of money he's a close to a billionaire but his money is based on the wwe being successful and the wwe growing and the wwe's you know Dana White's already cashed out, man. He already got 300 million bucks. So he he's doing it for the love of the game, so to speak. I mean, he could quit tomorrow and he ain't going to hurt him at all. So he sometimes has that aggravated disposition where he looks like he doesn't want to be there. But deep down, he loves it. And he's like, what else am I going to do? So Vince McMahon just loves running a business. I've heard this before. I don't know if I necessarily agree with it, but they're like, Vince McMahon hates wrestling. He doesn't like wrestling. He'd rather be a football guy or he'd rather, you know, but it's what he does best. It's what he knows. And he's the best ever at it. So uh, Dana White could probably be good at whatever he decided to do. But uh, Vince McMahon, he said this to me before. I remember we went, we moved from SmackDown moved to a new place. Uh, we were on whatever channel and it moved to USA. Like sci-fi or something. But he, that day, was very passionate. Like, he was in all the meetings. He was in all the practices, all the rehearsals. And I remember him saying, our asses are on the line tonight. we got to succeed. You know, so he, you know, he's, he's invested in that company. It's his company. Right. Where Dana White was just an employee, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, after striking that deal, I, now I see it from that perspective. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure building it for as many years as he did, it was uh, – different in the early years. I mean, I know, again, like he's not running, but he's still the president, so to speak. Right. He's still having to deal with all of these big, wild personalities like the McGregor's, the Diaz's, because most of them, most fighters, for the most part, again, have those really unique personalities that you kind of have to water down. Yeah. Well, I mean, what if someone said to you, hey, listen, we're going to pay you $300 million for your podcast. You never have to do it again. Yeah. And you're like, okay. Are you going to, you want to wake up at 8 a.m. and talk to Todd Grisham when you don't have to? I mean, you know, so he does it because he, he loves it. Hey, I, I reached out to you because I love this. Well, it's been fun, man. I, I, I appreciate you having me on the show, bro. Oh, yeah. You're a Guns N' Roses fan, so you're all right in my book for sure. No. What, what do you think of today's rap music? Because I always have this conversation because my generation, that, that's all they listen to. They don't know what this is. Like, this is like, quote, unquote, dad music, which I don't understand because music is timeless. But uh, what, do you, what do you think of some of the new rap stuff? Is it, is it disgraceful in your mind? Can you listen to it at all? Not to get political, man, but I swear, I, every single song has the N-word like every other sentence. I, I, I just don't I get it. Like it. And I'm, I'm surprised that in this culture that people are still cool with it. I know it's like uh, a certain segment can say it, no one else can say it. I'm like, yeah, but don't say it to me. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it every second. Of the, to me, it's disrespectful to everybody involved. I'm 44 now, but I've always kind of felt that way. I'm like, why is this the word that's, you know, and the, 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 the lyrics of degrading women and calling them bitches or whores, and wow. you know, and now with, uh, what's her name, with the WAP, you know, it's like, don't call us bitches and whores, but then they celebrate bitches. I don't get it, man. I really don't. I mean, I not to say let's bring back Marvin Gaye and those kind of songs, but why not, man? I guarantee you, 
like a Luther Vandross type of guy nowadays. Right. People just aren't, they don't hear it. And record, record executives aren't pushing that stuff. And I just wish someone could break through and, you know, change it, change it up a little bit. I mean, there's always going to be that market for that type of material. But I mean, I have three little daughters that are age nine, eight, and five, and they love like TikTok and that kind of stuff and learning dance moves. And they'll be learning a, a song and I'm listening to the lyrics. And I'm like, wait, hold on a second. Did they just say what I thought? I was like, you can't listen to this music. I'm like, why, dad? It's, there's no bad words in it. I'm like, those are bad words, honey. Don't use those words. If you say those in school, you will get kicked out of that school forever. Really? Yes. So that's, it's just, that's, I, that, that, that's that, why I don't listen to it. I like, uh, I think, um, and, a dun, 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 and a sunflower. Who's that guy? And never be too rough. Bruno Mars? No, I love Bruno Mars. Oh, God. Uh, uh, he has uh, tattoos over his face. Oh, Post Malone. Post Malone. Yeah. Post is great. Love his song. Good songs. I'm sure there's bad words in them, too, but I like that. I like that more. The Weeknd's good. I enjoy listening to him, but as far as, like, rap, no. not me. I, I mean, that's, like, all NBA, all basketball games we have here on campus. Like, that's what they listen to to pump themselves up. I'm like, I can't be motivated like this. I, I can't go to the gym and listen to Travis Scott or, or I don't, like, some of these guys, like, what is it, like, ASAP Rocky? Like, a lot of these names don't even motivate yeah. me to listen to them. It's, yeah. it's really bizarre. I mean, rock music today, like as a big rock guy, it's Greta Van Fleet and everybody else, in my opinion. So it's kind of hard to get into that, I guess. Yeah, like but, they, they consider Maroon 5 to be rock, you know I what know. I mean? I but know. That's just, hey, maybe rock and roll's dead. It'll, everything's cyclical. It'll come back again. I mean, in, at the big events, people still play Welcome to the Jungle. Yeah. You know, they still play Phil Collins in the air tonight. I mean, those... Those songs are, are timeless. They're classic. You're not hearing rap songs from the early 90s anymore. They didn't want to hear that. But. I mean, Post Malone, and again, like, again, you like him, I like him too, because he kind of has that rocker background. He did the Nirvana tribute yeah. a few months ago, um, singing like everything from the Nevermind album, I think. Uh, That's so he, right. He, he has like that rocker instinct. I, I guess it just didn't work out for him because I know he was originally country, didn't work out for him. And then he discovered himself and, you know, like broke through as a, a big time rapper. But he definitely has like, he's, he's good friends like Dave Grohl and all, all those guys. So like, yeah. I respect him in that sense. Hopefully he does some sort of collaboration with those guys soon. Even uh, Little Wayne did a rock album, didn't he? Yeah. I, yeah I he could... His last one. That's the thing about uh, a lot of, it, not so much necessarily just rap, but any kind of music where you don't need to play any instrument, you need no musical background. To me, that's, you're not a fraud, but I mean, I play guitar. Like yeah. to me, to, to be a musician, either write your own songs or play an instrument. To pick up a microphone and just start basically karaoke come on. Just editing everything on GarageBand. That, that's basically 90% of musicians today. And, and uh, what's the vocal, the vocal helper, the... Uh, yeah. Remember I mean, Kim Kardashian? Kim okay. Kardashian tried a song and they put that vocal thing on her. And basically, she just talked. She was okay. like, you know, let's go out for a party. And then when it goes to the thing, it's like, let's go out for a party. <laughs> right. I mean, I, that, that's what Post Malone th does, I think. I mean, you could yeah. hear the, the auto tune. Uh, yeah, auto tune. And, and again, like Ozzy Osbourne probably uses that 100% of the time at this point. So I or guess they were both. He's a dead man walking. Let him use the yeah. auto tune. My, my dad's convinced that Sharon Osbourne's doing all of the singing, and then she just auto-tunes his voice in at this point. I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't vote against that. 
<laughs> uh, Man, so, he should have been. Did you see that movie, The Dirt, about Motley Crue? He was like snorting ants off off the pool ground. I'm like, oh my god, is this what he actually did? I mean, who's going to die first, Keith Richards or Ozzy Osbourne? That's what it's going. That's the that's the bet that should be on the Vegas books right now. Keith Richards has great vibes though. Like Ozzy, I think Ozzy Osbourne at this point knows that he kind of screwed up at, 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 in some moments in his life. Like I probably should have taken better care of myself. So at, at this point, it's kind of like ride or die. I know he has, uh, I think Parkinson's now, so he's kind of like going downhill. But I don't know. I, I'd probably give Keith Richards the the go on that one. I think really. I think he's just a lot, you know, like content, happy. Not that that, you know, detriments or kind of determines who, your health. Yeah. But at the same time, like I feel like he's a lot more easygoing. Where Ozzy was always just zero to a hundred, and now back down to zero. And it's like his mind is probably all over the place. Well, I don't think I've ever seen a picture of Keith Richards without a cigarette in his mouth. So uh, if lung cancer could get that guy any day. I know, but he's he's he maybe he's he's like a piece of old tough leather you can't break it down you can't do anything with it it's just going to be there forever i know i mean and those two guys alone ozzy and keith richards like there's so many great rock and roll icons i mean you you look at the kurt cobains the chris cornell's now chester bennington scott wyland just to name a few like all of those great talents gone and granted they all had their own personal issues and stuff but like you look at some of these great young guys that died early on and you look like Ozzy's still here. Ozzy's the one that should have been gone, you know, oh, like yeah. five years ago. Oh, and how, are, how is any member of Motley Crue still alive? No, all of those guys. I mean, they were, you know, fortunate enough to go back on tour a few years ago. They were supposed to go on tour this year. Which It is, wasn't Tommy Lee. I think it was the guitarist. Uh, Nicky Nicky. Maybe it was Nicky. Who oh, said he, Nick Mars, he, hit, right? he hit absolute rock bottom. Where he, he they rushed him off with he's that he was dead. They did check he came alive and he said, So I went home, I reevaluated my life, I decided I'm never gonna do it again. And then he did. But just one more time. And he'd use like the rest that he had, which is like triple what he just went to the hospital for. And you're like, What are you doing? I think that was in the in the dirt. I think that was in the movie. I think that was yeah. six. Yeah. Uh, like, you're just oh. like, what? I mean, how could I don't know. I mean that that today is gone. That whole like sex, drugs, rock and roll scene is gone. And that probably killed some of the vibes, unfortunately, for the rock industry these days. Right. Well, it'll come back. It may be when I'm dead, but it'll come back. That would hey, be very unfortunate. We have a lot of great, great music that, uh, I mean, still to this, like if, if I play my playlist, 80% of it is from the 90s and late 80s. Yeah. I mean, same here. And I'm a uh, 21-year-old kid. People don't get it. You're only, hey, bro, you're doing great for yourself. <laughs> no, having this show and uh, doing your thing. I mean, you've got some pr pretty big name guests. I've seen your, your stuff. So congratulations on your success. W what is it you want to do? Have you decided? Play-by-play, uh, -play, podcasting, writing, filmmaking, uh, all the above. I, I want to dip my feet in everything, meet as many people as I can, build as many relationships as I can. Because, again, like, yeah. it, it sounds cheesy, but you only live once, right? I, I want to yeah. experience a little bit of everything. Well, I've told people, like, my, if you asked me in college, my, my dream goal, as I mentioned, was to call the World Cup final as an announcer. But I never, sh I was never like this. I was like, hey, I'm going to do this. I, I know I got to get in TV. I want to get in sports. And then as you, you get in here, you, you, you realize, hey, instead of this, I've got a new goal now. I want to call the biggest fights in the world. That's, to me, I have a dream job. If someone called me right now and said, hey, you can quit that and call the World Cup final, I'd say no. 
So if your goal is to call NFL football, well, you know what? Start out in a minor league baseball park. And before you know it, you may fall in love with baseball, but at least you're doing sports broadcasting and there's no way you're getting to the NFL unless you start building a reservoir of experience that you can fall back on. Oh, yeah. And a lot of these big networks have their guys in place, right? Because Joe Buck's been there forever. He's going to be there for the next 20, 30 years if he stays healthy. Uh, the Yes Network growing up, a Yankee fan, Michael Kay, he's going to be there forever with the Yankees. The Yankees and the Yes Network have their plan in place. They have their broadcasters in place. And, and again, to your credit, because you wanted to be a soccer broadcaster, right? Because for yeah. the most part, they're English announcers. Like, your, your goal was to be, you know, like the first great American soccer Exactly. That's what, because it made me so mad. I, in 1996, I was a, a senior in college and MLS started and I was, bro, I was dialed in. Yeah. I loved it. And I remember almost all the teams had English announcers and I was like, this is so stupid. We we're the number one, we're the number one participation country in the world. I think for soccer at that time, maybe, maybe China was ahead of us, but everyone knows the game. They all play it. They just don't watch it. So I was like, why can't an American do it? And it was basically, from what I learned, no one really tried. They're like, I don't want to do soccer for MLS. I don't even know what that is. I'd rather do AAA baseball. So that was my goal. And then I actually worked for Fox Soccer Channel for five years. While I was doing WWE, they let me do both. And I covered the MLS as like the host. So I did like 130 games live on site. And I got my fill of it. And I just, uh, once I started doing fights, the, oh, okay. the electricity, and every sport's great, but the electricity of a big, big fight. It's like, it's nothing tops it. I mean, I'm, I'm 100% certain of that. Like the second you step into that world, you're like, this is something different. This is something exciting. This is something that's going to set my soul on fire as opposed to calling, you know, single A baseball games where you have to break into the business. Like everybody's like, I want to be a sports broadcaster. And like me personally, I haven't gone through, you know, the trenches of minor league baseball yet. I want to, I'm a big baseball guy. If I do play by play, it's, probably baseball is my number one so like everything else i i am well versed in but baseball i could tell a story uh like i could get by with baseball if i was you know in, in bad times and didn't do a full game prep like it is my number one passion um and again there's a lot of sports broadcasters out there i, I mean i'm sure you've had this conversation uh, before with with other guys like there's a lot of guys who want to do this but not willing to you know go through those trenches go to you know that no-name city where there's going to be 15 people watching and you, you have to do everything you gotta be yeah. the announcer uh, work in sales work in marketing work in whatever that they want you to do wearing 10 different hats uh, a lot of kids you know don't want to do that I, I guess my question is for you like what what do you see from, you know, current aspiring uh, young sportscasters uh, today in, in regards to, you know, like social media, uh, their on-air presence, and at the same time, like actually having that instinct, like that laser eye focus to actually want to pursue this, not just say that they want to? Well, first of all, when it comes to baseball, that's the one sport I could not do right now because only 8% of the, the, the game is actually the balls in play. The rest of the time, you're just talking about, hey, there's a beach ball in the outfield. Or did you know his dad owned an ice cream shop back in the 70s? I would hate doing baseball. <laughs> so God bless you for that. You just got to be, you got to have the gift of gap. Yeah. You got to just be able to, whatever. Catch um, I love storytelling. That's probably the biggest yeah. thing for me. I love, I love the stories. Yeah. Um, to me, it's much easier to start in broadcasting now than it was when I was 21 because you didn't have podcasts. You didn't have video chats. You didn't have, you know, if you want to be in broadcasting, you went down to the radio station and turned in your resume. So people like you that are building your, your 
brand, building your uh, talent by practicing and getting this going. It's a perfect way to, to do it. You haven't even gotten out of college yet. For me, it was calling high school football games while I was in college and being a DJ on the radio. But my first job, I got offered $14,000 a year to go to Ottumwa, Iowa, which is in the middle of nowhere. No one, the, the guy, the uh, news director, when I talked to him on the phone, he's like, yeah, no one, no one wants to come here. I was like, what? And I lived in Florida. I packed up my Acura Integra, drove there, got a place for $300 a month. And I slept on the floor of this guy's attic because I wanted to be on TV so bad. I, wanted to, I was wanting to do whatever it takes. And it was people at my college, I remember, I went to West Georgia. And you talked about wanting to get reps. That I loved it because no one wanted to even do it. I would do the news and the sports on the same thing. And I remember one girl saying, uh, they brought me back, it's probably five years ago, and gave me a Lifetime Achievement Award or something. And these girls were, gra- this girl was graduating, I want to say in three weeks. And I was like, so what are you going to do? She goes, I don't know. I'm trying to decide. Maybe I want to work at CNN or maybe like at NBC News or something. Like and I was like, first of all, West Georgia University has let you down to make you believe that's even in, in the realm of possibility. Do you have a resume tape? Um, no, but I've been on, I've been on, I couldn't even, couldn't even deal with it. Some people are just, they think, you know, cause this is an instant gratification society. Now, anything you want, you can have in the snap of a finger as long as you have the, the means to do it. So some of these people who've always had their parents buy stuff for them and they get good grades in college, they think, Oh, I'll just go be on the today show. It doesn't work that way. You've got to, you got to start small unless you're unless you're extremely talented and you fit what people are looking for right now and bad news to you, Jack, they're not looking for white guys. I'll tell you that right now. So you've got to go above and beyond and you got to start small and then you got to do the dirty work. Just like uh, in baseball, you don't start out on the major league roster. You start out in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. So you got to put the work in and that's what separates a lot of people. And some people like when I went to Tucson, uh, one of my friends was like, hey, you may be here forever. You may love it and love the town and want to settle down and have a family. And that happens to a lot of people too. You fall in love, you, you make your 50 grand a year and you're happy. So to keep plugging and having that desire to, to take risks and to move across the country, it's uh, what are you prepared to do? Oh, yeah. I mean, the more it goes, the, the more, you know, like the, broad, the aspiring broadcasters, it thins out. The, the, the more you get to the top because a lot of people yeah. just don't have the self-discipline to do it anymore. They'd again, rather take the paycheck, be happy, be content with everything else yeah. that they got going on in their lives as opposed to fighting for the dream that they once had in that sense. And you're completely right. I, I've had this conversation with a few people, like a lot of, and a lot of young aspiring broadcasters like me, like, they, they envision, you know, like that 65-year-old white guy calling baseball games or football games, you know, and you're kind yeah. of like, that, that's what it is, you know, and you, you, you imitate people. Um, a lot of people don't realize early on, like, you have to discover your own voice. You have to be your own, you know, charismatic character on the air. How early was it for you as a young broadcaster where you kind of uh, figured out, like, okay, I have to be different? I knew, I just, my whole mantra was I don't want to be boring. Yeah. Because I, especially in these smaller markets, there's like in Tucson, there's ABC, CBS, NBC and Fox. So there's four, four local sports guys on the air. And when it's a small market, you're all doing pretty much the same story. Hey, the Arizona Wildcats played this team or there's a high school. Team. So we're all doing the exact same story. Why should they watch me instead of these other people? Exactly. Well, it, we're, we have the same highlights. We have the same. You know, why? Well, I was, I would like to think it's because I make mine more entertaining and I ask different questions and I try and make the kids laugh and I try and 
you know, I would do things like if I was going to do a story on this eighth grade running back who's setting a local record, I'd put on the pads, I'd put on the thing, I'd get in a linebacker position, and I'd tell him to come roll, run me over. Can he run, run over a 25-year-old former college soccer Totally blow my helmet off, you know. So I would do whatever, you know, whatever I could think of to make it different and make it more fun. How many ideas have you pitched over the years that like, you thought would, would have been amazing and they probably would have, been, but they just didn't go through? Because I know me at the college level right now, there's ideas that we pitch. And they're like, oh, that's great. We'll think about it. And then you never hear from them again, you know, because yeah. there's a lot of restrictions in that sense. Well, it's hard because you always have a, uh, an idea in your head of how it will turn out. And right. depending on how you explain it, they may have a different idea how it's going to turn out. Um, and some people I've found just don't like your ideas because they're not their ideas. So I've learned, even when I may, recently made a pitch for this show, uh, I won't get into the details, to, to air on this network that me and my buddy actually pitched. And when we talked to the guy, we were very much, instead of here's our idea, here's how we would do it, take it or leave it. It was, hey, we have some general ideas, but we know you're the master at this. So we'd love your input. And we thought maybe we could kind of formulate this together. Here's what we think. And then it became a whatever. So then when he takes it to his boss, it's his idea instead of, hey, these two yahoos sent me this. So the more you can make it, uh, you know, that it's not you versus the world and it's we against the world, I think you'll, you'll find that you'll get more success. And that kind of alludes to like what we were talking about before with kind of the self-discipline stuff. You know, like it, it's hard being on the road all the time and, and being away from your family and doing it from that perspective. But at the same time, like you could get discouraged if like your ideas don't go through or if somebody like not steals your ideas because it is their, their, their brand, their business. But at the same time, like it, it kind of gets flipped and you kind of get left out in the dust in a sense of like, oh, like this is how it is. Like this isn't exactly how I pictured it, right? That's the way it goes. But you know, Every idea, there are very few ideas that go unchallenged all the way up to the top of the pyramid chain. You may have an idea about, I don't know, doing a talk show about cheese. And by the time it gets to the, the top of the heap, well, it's not about cheese anymore. It's about wine and cheese. You know, okay, cool. Wine and cheese. Good. Why not? I mean, at the same time, like if you don't take it that seriously, but at the same time, it's still kind of your idea. Like at the end of the day, like God's going to take his own course for you and you kind of have to just live in the moment in that sense. And that was going to be my last question for you. I don't want to take too much of your time here. I know we're going uh, close to an hour 20 here, but yeah, for God's uh, sake, is this a paid, is this a paid interview? I forgot to ask you that. Yeah, I'll Venmo you later. Yeah. Okay. I'm sure. One other tip I would give you before you go is that no matter how good you think you are right now, but how good you think you are at any age, right. if I showed you yourself five years later, you'd be like, I suck. Yep. So never think you got it figured out. I remember when, when I was in my first job in, in Iowa and I made my tape to send around to other places. I sent it to my buddy and he goes, you're not, you're not good enough to leave that mark. I said, what are you talking about? I did this thing because I'm just telling you. And I was so mad and upset. I was like, why doesn't he think I'm good? And then I sent him another tape six months later. And he goes, bro, you've gotten so much better. And I, I watched the two tapes side by side and it was like night and day. Oh yeah. So you're never as good as you think you are. Okay. But on the flip side, I've made calls on fights and been like, that was the worst call of my life. It sucked. And I wasn't as bad. So you're never as good as you are, think you are, and you're never as bad as you think you are. Right. You're, you're, you're your biggest critic, but at the same time, like, I know I'm going to look back at all of these interviews probably a year from now even and think yeah. like, man, I, I really thought that was good in the moment. But I guess yeah. uh, as time progresses, like, you really weren't that good. Well, but. Not so much in this format where you're just kind of being relaxed and talking to somebody, but if I said to you, hey, go call this, this, 
this baseball game this oh, weekend. Yeah. You finish, and you're like, wow, I did great. And I play it for you five years later, you're like, oh, my, I can't believe they didn't turn my mic off. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, and, again, like the last thing I wanted to uh, ask you was, uh, and I, I asked a lot of my guests this question because I do feel like it's very important. You know, we've talked about some of the, the up and up rising things, the things you have to go through, going through the trenches in, in certain things to get to where you want to go. And again, you, you sacrifice a lot. Like a lot of people are on the road a lot. You're on the road right now. You're in Florida. You're not home uh, uh, with your family. But at the same time, uh, you do have that because you're a dad now. And I, I guess my general question is, how are you able to not balance, but at the same time, kind of maintain that happiness as you're going along? You're doing your, what your dream is, but at the same time, you have a family back home, right? Yeah. Well, luckily for me, uh, the good thing about my job is, yes, I'm gone for a week. So my kids are like, that stinks. Yeah. But when I get home, I'll be home for 14 days. So, I mean, I'm talking about That's no work. I mean, some, some studying and, you know, at night or whatever. So by the time I leave, they're like, all right, cool. I'll, you know, whatever that they, they've known it their whole life. So it'd be one thing if, uh, you know, I was a traveling salesman, I'd go seven days here, three days here, go home for a day. But right now my schedule for the most part, and it, it does get crowded certain times, but usually I'll be gone for a week and home for two weeks or gone for two weeks and home for two weeks or whatever it is. So I've been fortunate enough to, you know, especially during COVID for, for eight months, I was home every day, all day. So I think if anything, my kids were probably, you know, go make some money, dad. We need some new clothes. Were there any early experiences for you where you felt like you were sacrificing a lot more? Cause again, you learn as you go, you learn as you get older, but at the same time, do you look back at any experiences and say like, maybe I should have handled that better. Maybe I should have made this decision over this decision. Yeah. I mean, you can go back and do that all day long, but you know, for my income level, for my success, you have to make certain sacrifices. I mean, you know, do you think, uh, I don't know if Rihanna has kids, but when she goes on tour for six months, I mean, you know, you, you got to do it. it. That's, that's the job. And it's not going to be the perfect family life, but you make it as, as good as you can. And you got to say, look, Hey, I don't get to spend as much time with you as I'd like, but look at all these nice things we get to do. We get to go to Florida on vacation. We get to have this nice house. We get to eat out whenever we want. Pretty much. We get, you know, there's, there's positives and negatives. I mean, it could be negative, negative where I'm traveling all the time and I'm not making any money and I'm doing a job that I hate and I'm missing out on my kids. That would suck. Yeah. But I always tell them anytime they, my daughters get upset that I'm leaving. I'm like, baby, yesterday you wanted me to go get you some LOL dolls at the Dollar Tree. I got to go make some dollars so we can go to the Dollar Tree. Then it's like, oh, okay, daddy, we can get LOL dolls when we get back. Sure. You know? now, now it makes sense. And I'll, go spend, again, I'll, go, I'll go spend three bucks at the Dollar Tree, no problem. <laughs> and again, it is the life you chose. And as you go uh, about it year after yeah. year, you, you learn from, you know, past yeah. mistakes and you're able to, uh, in a sense, not balance, but, you know, balance it a little bit. Yeah. And if you ever need, if you ever need a baseline to consider, to know how fortunate you are, just think if you, if you were in the military and you were yeah. stationed over in the Middle East and you don't see your kids for six months, you're still not making great money and you could die. So I never have looked at it as that it's a sacrifice on my part. It's just a blessing. Oh yeah. You gotta be grateful for what you have. And, and Todd, I want to thank you so much for coming on today. I know you're a busy man uh, you got the call later. Uh, I just want to thank you so much again for taking about, you know, the last hour and a half of, of your morning to, to talk to me and, you know, stay safe. Don't get sick. Cause that's probably the worst thing right, right. now. 
uh, given the times and given all the traveling instances? Like, what's protocol like? Uh, for- right now, I took a COVID test about 10 minutes before we talked. So I am staying at the stay in my room until I get results, which will most likely happen later today or tomorrow. And once I pass that test, God willing, then tomorrow I can leave my room to go to only designated areas in the hotel that are considered bubbles. For, so the fighters, the trainers, the broadcasters, when we get off the elevator, we have to go down the side ramp or whatever. So then I'll be in that, that bubble until the fight Friday night. And then after the fight, I'm good to go. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks for the time, Jack. I enjoyed it. I know you're going to be a star one day. Keep it up. Welcome to the jungle, baby. Guns and Roses forever. I'm so boned. I forgot to get my girl tickets for the show tomorrow, and now it's sold out. It's her freaking birthday. Oh, dude. She's totally going to break up with you. She's definitely going to break up with me. Should have used TickPick. Wait, what'd you say? TickPick. Look. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Dude. What? There are no hidden fees. What'd you guys think I said? Oh, TickPick. I thought you said TickPick. No hidden fees. Download today. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.